So this morning we are continuing our series that's going to lead us all the way up until Easter called The Week That Saved the World. And, and what we're doing is, is really quite simple. We are we're taking a slow walk in the scriptures through seven days in Jesus' life. Uh, seven days that, that we would argue as people of faith, seven days that, that changed the world for the better. And, and so we started a couple weeks ago, and, and we started moving really fast. We started on, on what Christians call Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem. And then we, in that same week, we talked about Palm Sunday, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way to Thursday. And then starting last week, we slowed way down. Because the gospel writers, as they tell this story, they slow way down. And really, all we're doing is, is tracing this story through and looking for what it means about Jesus and, and what it means for, for us. That, that's really it. And so this morning, we find ourselves at late Thursday night, early Friday morning. It's not really clear. It's either really late on Thursday night or really, really early on Friday morning for Jesus. He has, he's just been apprehended by the Jewish leaders who want to try him for blasphemy. He's been apprehended and taken into custody. And the accusation against Jesus is that he is... He is um, offending the name and the person and the reality of God, which was a crime in that time and in that day and in that age that was punishable by death. And so Jesus has been apprehended and he's about ready to be tried in a religious court by these religious leaders. But, but, he's, but he's innocent. He's innocent of all of it. Now, I, I have to say that I'm particularly well-suited to talk about this, not just because I'm a pastor, which helps a great deal, but also because... I watch a lot of Netflix, and in particular, I watch a lot of the, of the crime documentaries on Netflix, which, if you haven't seen them, they're basically all the same. Some, some murder happened in the Midwest that is essentially unsolved, even though some poor guy is sitting in jail for it, and this documentary film crew, along with, with some rogue lawyer, is going to find out the truth, set this person free, and find the real killer which is just fascinating television, but also I wonder, does the real killer also have Netflix? (laughs) Like, is the real killer at home binge-watching this along with me because he or she has a vested interest in how this thing turns out? Like, yes, I want to watch the next episode because I want to know if they're going to come knocking on my door. (laughs) Jesus is falsely accused, and, and he is on trial. But nobody is advocating for him, and not even himself. In fact, the only time Jesus speaks up in this, in this trial, in this moment, he makes it worse for himself. And when he speaks up, he, he guarantees that he's going to be found guilty by these religious leaders and then turned over to the Romans, who are the ones who had the actual authority in Jerusalem at the time, to, to sanction someone's capital punishment, to put someone to death. But, but don't be confused. Just as we said a couple weeks ago, though Jesus is arrested, he is in control. Nothing happens that Jesus does not want to have happen. In fact, in this moment, what we see is that Jesus is initiating and stepping into something that that theologians have long called uh, the great reversal. The great reversal. Where in this moment, and then certainly on the cross and in the empty tomb, Jesus is trading places with sinful humanity very clearly, very explicitly. He's trading places with us so that he can earn and then offer forgiveness for us. 
And that's really just what I want to point out as we walk through this portion of the story. I want to point out all the ways and all the levels at which Jesus is reversing roles with us. He's trading spaces and places with us so that he can earn something that is not deserved by us. He can earn it for us. So, so Jesus is, is bound. He's, his hands are tied together, and he's, he's standing in the middle of the high priest's court, which was the high priest's own home. And standing in the middle is the high priest with Jesus, and then all around the outside are members of what's called the Sanhedrin, this religious leadership group. At least as many numbers of the Sanhedrin that they could wake up in the middle of the night so that they could get them to the high priest's home so that they could have the quorum that they needed. They needed a certain number of people present in order to vote legally on Jesus's guilt or innocence. And so Jesus is standing there, and remember, it's, it's the ancient world, and it's the middle of the night, and so it's very, very dark. It's lit by candlelight. It's very tense. Everyone in the room knows that this is not protocol. This is not how things typically go. So it is tense. It is nervous. It is dark. It's also quite honestly, probably smelly. This is a room full of men who were woken up in the middle of the night who are now sweating profusely because this is not the way things typically go. So about three quarters of the room probably needs a shower. And in the middle of that room stands Jesus. Jesus stands in the middle of that room and from the sides, people start stepping forward to testify against him, to talk about the crimes that he's committed. And they step forward and say things like, he's blasphemed against God, I heard it. Or he, he said that he was going to tear down the temple with human hands. The problem is that none of their testimony corroborated, which they needed to have happen in order to justifiably sentence Jesus to death. You see, the, the Jewish leaders had very strict rules about how how a trial like this, a religious trial like this, should go. And those rules are documented in history. You can look at them today. Uh, the rules state things like, it should not happen in the high priest's home. Where are they? In the high priest's home. It should not happen in the dead of night. It's the dead of night. Uh, the trial should not happen immediately after arrest. That would hinder due process. Uh, there needs to be at least a little bit of time taken for people involved to kind of get their act and their stories together so that we can have a, a just and fair process. This is happening immediately after Jesus is arrested. And then they had stringent rules about witness testimony. If you're going to accuse somebody, especially someone of blasphemy in this particular courtroom, that, that testimony had to be corroborated by three witnesses. And those witnesses had to be credible uh, they had to be basically unimpeachable in character, and most importantly, their stories needed to match up. And yet none of that is happening here. And so everyone in the room, the high priest, Jesus, the Sanhedrin around the walls who are all scared and look at each other, they all know that this whole procedure is quite literally illegal. And that, that the testimony that's being levied against Jesus is false. It's based on lies. It, it, it should not be permissible. It cannot stand up. And yet all of it is happening and all of it is going forward. Now this would be bad enough if it were, if it were just you or me that's on trial in this situation. But this isn't happening in some downtown Houston courtroom. This is happening in the heart of Jerusalem to Jesus. And, and remember who Jesus is. Jesus is not just the, the rabbi and rebel teacher who claims to be the, the long-predicted, long-awaited Savior of the world. Jesus is, in fact, 
what people of faith believe. He is God in flesh, God's own son. And, and what we know about God is this, among many things. We know that God is the one who defines justice and then defines and defends truth. You can, you can also say that God is justice and truth, right? God is justice and truth. So, so that means Jesus is justice and Jesus is truth. But then look at what's happening here. Justice and truth are being unjustly tried and falsely accused. Justice and truth in the flesh is being illegally tried and accused with lies. A great reversal is taking place. The story continues. Uh, the high priest is, is frustrated that he can't get the stories corroborated from the witnesses. And he knows that he needs something for him to take a vote on among the crowd so that they can vote that Jesus should die. And so in his frustration, he, he approaches Jesus himself and he, he tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself. He tries to get Jesus to, uh, to get himself in trouble. And if, if you watch these Netflix crime documentaries or if you watch Dateline or anything like that, what you know is that potentially the most, the most exciting moment in a trial, the most, the most intense moment in the trial is, is if you can get the defendant to take the stand and give testimony in their own defense. Because when that happens, man, you start to wonder, is, is this person going to crack under the cross-examination? Is this person going to confess in some kind of Perry Mason Matlock moment? I did it, I did it, I did it, and I don't regret it. Or is this person, is this person going to win over the jury with their testimony? And so the high priest confronts Jesus. And he asks him, what, what do you say about what all these people are saying? What do, you, what do you say? Say something. Say something in your defense. And everybody in the room kind of leans in, wondering what Jesus is going to say. They lean in, and there's this long pause, and nothing. Jesus is silent. He, he's being asked to, to defend himself and to explain himself but, but Jesus is, he's silent in that moment. Says nothing. One of the many things we, we try to teach our kids is respect for authority. And Jesus in this moment is interpreted by those who are present as not showing much respect for authority. He's not respecting the power and the authority of the high priest in his moment of silence here as he's being confronted with the accusations that are in front of him. But really what's happening is that the people in that room are not respecting Jesus's authority and not respecting his position. You know, we, we teach our children to respect authority. We, we, we tell them that, that the authority of other people needs to be recognized in some way, shape, or form. And you, and you recognize it like this, like, like you tell your kids, hey, you, you, don't, you don't talk to your parents the same way you talk to your siblings. Recognize my position and my power and my authority. Uh, you, don't, you don't speak to your school teacher the same way you speak to your cousins. You don't goof around with the police officer the, the same way you goof around with the kid next door. 
part of how this world works is we all recognize the authority that other people have. We recognize it and we show some respect for it. That makes the world a better place and it also helps ensure that your kid doesn't grow up to cause some international incident by trying to high-five the queen or something like that. The world works better when, when we recognize this. And yet again, think about what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus is God in flesh, God's own son. This, this mind-expanding reality that we can't even begin to grasp the fullness of. Who is the one that deserves to be recognized? He is. Who is the one who deserves to be praised for all that he is? He is. And yet he's having to give an answer for himself and explain himself. You know, God calls us to respect the authorities around us because, because it's, uh, it's a good way to practice the authority and the recognition that, that we're supposed to offer respect for in him. I mean, you see this throughout the scriptures. Like, like you look at the Psalms. David writes this in the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 145 is a great example. David says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another. In other words, I'm going to teach my kids to recognize and respect how awesome you are and shall declare your mighty acts. That's what David says of God. That's God getting the respect and the recognition that he deserves. And think again about what's happening here. Jesus, with his hands tied in this religious courtroom, Jesus is God, and he's being asked to defend himself, explain yourself, tell us who you are, justify yourself. He's the one who should be recognized and respected by them. He has every right to say, hey, don't you know who I am? Treat me with a bit of respect. And yet what's happening here is that the one whose name should be praised is being told to defend his name. A reversal is taking place. Now, now here's the thing. You don't stand silent in the face of the high priest for long. Even if you're Jesus. Because eventually, the, the intensity of it ramps up to such a degree that, that you will say something. There was no Fifth Amendment privilege in first century Palestine. And so, knowing that he needed something with which to hold this trial and hang his hat on, uh, the high priest confronts Jesus again, and he ramps up the intensity, and this time he, he directly accuses Jesus of blasphemy. Uh, th this is how it happens in, in Mark's gospel. Mark says this, starting in chapter 14. Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, this is a really important moment, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment, which was an expression of, of shock and grief in the face of blasphemy. It's kind of a cultural thing that was done then. And he said, what further witnesses do we need? In other words, let's call a vote. And everybody, it's assumed, just raised their hand. You didn't even need to. He'd blasphemed right in front of them. He said, yes, I am I am the Messiah, I am God, I am everything you accuse me of. Now, what's important to keep in mind is that Jesus doesn't just say yes. Jesus adds even more. This is the moment, if you follow the story of Jesus, this is really the moment that Jesus has been waiting for. 
If you, if you read through the Gospels, there are lots of moments where people kind of put two and two together and they figure out who he is. And they're like, oh, like you're the, you're the, and Jesus says, not yet. Or somebody comes up to him and they ask him a question of like, hey, uh, are you God? And Jesus is like, I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe. That's what Jesus does. But, but all of it's leading up to this moment where, where Jesus, Jesus finally, he, he lets the cat out of the bag, so to speak. And he says, yes, I am exactly what everyone's been saying about me. I, I am that. But he ramps it up. He doesn't just say yes. He says, heck yes. And he puts his foot down. And he, he, he references two scriptures that every single religious leader in that room who had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized, which is a requirement to be a member of this group, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, memorized. He references two scriptures that every single one of them would have known, Psalm 110 and then like Daniel chapter 7, which talks about the, the power of the divine, that's Psalm 110, and then the fact that there is this son of man who is going to be God himself coming back to judge mankind and establish God's kingdom. So Jesus says, oh, not only am I God's own son and God in flesh, I have all the power of God in me right now, and I am the divine righteous judge. This is my world. This is my kingdom. This is my courtroom. Don't you get that? That's what Jesus is saying. And at that moment, all hell breaks loose. And at that moment, he is accused of blasphemy because they don't believe a word he's saying, obviously. And at that moment, they, they begin to punch him. They begin to kick him. They begin to spit on him. They, they, they physically and verbally assault him. They bring the guards in to do, to do what they can't. Like, my punches and my kicks aren't hard enough. Bring in the guards. Let them go to town on Jesus. And, and what you have is Jesus, who's, who's now finally said, he's waited to this moment when it was life or death, and he chose death to stick to his guns and say, I am the Son of God, God in flesh with power in my bones. He chose to stand at that moment and say it, and now he's getting kicked He's getting spat upon. They're hurling insults at him. They're saying, prophesy, if you know the future, tell me that this kick is coming right to your gut. That's what they're doing. Because he's a blasphemer. Because he's offended God. But what is happening? A grand irony is taking place. Jesus is getting kicked and punched and condemned because he's offending God. And the people who are kicking and punching him, they're the ones who are actually in that moment guilty of it. Jesus is being punished for blasphemy by the people in the room who in their punishing of him are actually guilty of blasphemy. They have just condemned God, refused to believe God. They have just punched God, spat on God, kicked God, and ordered the death of God. And so what's happening, the true righteous judge, that's Daniel 7, takes the punishment of and from the truly guilty. A great reversal is taking place. Now, now for you and me, like, what, what, what does all this mean? Like, what's the theological and personal, like, application of this? Uh, and, and, and to get you there, I have to jump back to Netflix. I do. So, so like, when you, when you watch these crime documentaries, 
you sit there and you think, wow, what, how in the world does this happen? And, and I, wonder if, I wonder if the guilty person, the one who really is guilty of all of this, the one who should be on trial, I wonder if they're watching this. What do you think's happening when we walk through these seven days? What do you think is happening when you and I, we watch the unjust and illegal trial of Jesus, when we watch the innocent man get tried and punished, we are watching someone else in our place. We're the guilty party watching making a murderer too. We are the guilty party watching the trial and the condemnation of Jesus. You see, Jesus is standing in a religious courtroom being being asked to give an account for things that he's never done. That's not his courtroom to stand in as, as a defendant. It's yours and it's mine. You know, you and I, you and I, we are creations. One day we're going to stand before our creator accountable for everything. And he's going to have every right in that moment, if God wants to, to hold us accountable to everything we've ever done. That, that's like my place and yours. That's our spot in that courtroom. And Jesus is being asked to uh, to give an account, a specific account, to defend himself and justify himself for all the, for all the atrocities he's committed and all the evils he's purveyed. But, but he hasn't done any of those things. But, and I know we don't like to talk about this, but, but I'll go first. I have. Like, I got stuff. You do. Je- Jesus is being... Punished for blasphemy, for offending the name of God. And he's not offending the name of God. It's his name. He's not offended. It's not even possible. But like, but I'm the one who, I live my life insisting that the rest of the world treat me as God and that the whole of the world bend to my will. That's like who, that's who I am. And, and, and I spend most of my life, 99% of my life, and I'm a pastor, 99% of my life operating and acting as if God doesn't exist and then I get frustrated when he doesn't do what I want. Like, you're looking at a guy who is full of faith in Jesus and love for Jesus, but who is so often a functional atheist, and so are you. And so, and so who's the one who should be called out for their, their offense of the name of God? It's, 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 it's you and me. So what's happening is, is Jesus is undergoing, he's standing in your courtroom, and Jesus is being asked questions you should be asked, and Jesus is being punished for things that, that you and I are guilty of. A great reversal has taken place. And you ask the question, well, why would Jesus do this? He, he takes on this burden that, that he doesn't deserve so that he can give us a blessing that we don't deserve. That's Why? And, and it's ludicrous and it doesn't make sense. Like, why would God do this? Why wouldn't he just, like, wipe all the pieces off the chessboard and start over? I, I don't know. He could if he wanted to, but he doesn't. It's ludicrous, but it's love, and love is often ludicrous. You give people things they don't deserve because you love them. And so God says, I love all these people. And so he, he enters into our trial and answers our questions and, and stands under our condemnation so that justice can be done, but we come out squeaky clean. And he trades those spaces with us. And so he gets our burden. And then he says, here, as I take your burden, have the blessing of being a part of my family. When the father looks at you, he now sees Jesus. When the father looks at you, he sees his perfection. He sees his place in the family. He sees all of his promises, he sees all of it. That's, that's the great reversal. That's the trade. That's, that's what's happened here. 
That's the why of this moment. And, and here's what I want you to do with it. If this is a new story for you, or if you are just now starting to appreciate this story, um, my, my encouragement for you is to binge watch it a little bit. Especially this time of year. Like this, this whole story of Jesus being rejected, crucified, dying and rising, and, and it, all of it being for you. Not, not just for us, but like for you. Like you right there. Like for you. Like binge watch that story. Rehearse it. Get in front of it. Read it. Watch it this time of year. And, and grow in some appreciation for it. And then the next thing I would ask is if, if, if you are familiar with this story is to express your gratitude for what happened in this story during this time of year. That's what this time of year is for. It's for you to take some moments if you're here as a person of faith and, and to say, Jesus, thank you for trading places with me. Thank you for taking my burden so that I could get all the blessing. So often we forget that this is what has happened, that you, you live as a forgiven and loved child of God. It is finished. It's all done. You get to just live in joy and know that any pain you experience is temporary, not eternal. That's your reality. But at certain moments during the year, it's good for us to slow walk and to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then the next level of application is this, and this is like some some, some postgraduate work in following Jesus, but you guys are all up to the task. The next level is this. We don't just like binge watch that story and kind of get it flowing through our veins. We don't just say thank you for this story, but we start to imitate this story, this great reversal. And by the way, that's what the whole of discipleship is. It's just taking what we see Jesus doing and trying to do it ourselves imperfectly. It's like, it's like the other day when my son was going to help me clean the car. He made it worse. <laughs> but he's blessed by helping his dad. And he grows from it and he learns some things from it. And his heart is full when he gets to do it. And so is his dad's. That's what discipleship is. You see Jesus doing certain things, and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that too. He loves these type of people. He, he gives generously. He, he loves to his own detriment. I'm going to do that too. That, that's what discipleship is. So if you see Jesus trading places with people who don't deserve it, trade places with people who don't deserve it. If you see Jesus initiating this great reversal, initiate a great reversal in your own life. Here's what that looks like. You, you have joy, saddle up to next to somebody who doesn't have joy and give them yours in some way, shape, or form. You have means, you have wealth, and we are a very wealthy people. You seek out and you share someone who doesn't have what you have. If you have peace, like life is good for you, then you notice and you seek out and you saddle up next to somebody who is anxious and worried and afraid. If you have health in your bones, you sit next to the sick and you be present with them. What we do is we, we engage in this great reversal and we say, I'm going to take some of what I have and give it to someone who doesn't have, and I'm going to meet them in their burden in some way, shape, or form so that they can be lifted up in some small way to the blessing that I enjoy. That's what people of faith do. We see Jesus reversing roles and getting into our lives at the cost of his own self, and so we say, okay, Dad, I'm going to try it. That's how we respond to this. You are the beneficiary of the great reversal. Who in the week ahead might benefit from you? Drawing close. Seeking them out. Giving of yourself. 
so that you might lift them up to where you are in some small, seemingly insignificant way. That's what it means. We'll pick up the story next Sunday. Let's pray.